Look with me to God's word. And there's some things I want you to, to be reminded of. Um, there is a tragic fall. What happened in the book of beginnings in Genesis? In Genesis, we got it. In Genesis chapter 3, what happened in Genesis 3? The fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was, what was it? Good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. That sounds like um, 1 John, doesn't it? It sure does. There's a lust of the flesh and a lust of the eyes. And it says, And the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, and their eyes were open. Uh, they made themselves covering, and man has fallen. Fallen. And since then, everyone is born fallen. They're born um, separated from the living God from birth. And because of this reality, the moment someone is born, they begin a process of dying. Even that little infant, when you hear their first cry, yes, they're growing, but as they grow, they're doing what? They're dying at the same time. Uh, That's true for us all. Even when I was at this high school reunion uh, there was one table, it was 2006, the class of 2006, and some of you may know, like my great-nephew, who was tragically, his life was tragically taken recently, and I was in Orlando just about a month ago, and they had his picture there for class of 2006, but there were five other students. I mean, there were different things. I mean, one was, one was cancer, I'm thinking, cancer, this age, how can that be? One was another disease. How can that be at this age? I'm talking about the class of 2006. 2006. This is not the class of 66 or 56 or 46. And I thought, here is death right here. So in the midst of this celebration, as people were greeting one another, and how are you, and, it, and it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in so long. And, and there are those awkward moments when someone comes to you, Carl, how are you doing? And you know who I am, right? And I say to myself, hmm, I shouldn't lie, should I? Because I really don't know who you are. Um, and then they'll say, I am such and such. And you're like, oh, that's right. It's good to see you. How are you? You know, how is your sister? How is this person? And you have these conversations. But right in the corner of that football field was the class of 2006. And I saw, I think it was six of these young people that are no, can't be there with their class for various reasons. Six, I thought. There's death. 
And since this fall, it has created the greatest need whatsoever. How does one overcome death? Well, the only way that you can overcome death is by having life. And, and life is not in yourself. That life is in God. And this is why in the book of Colossians, even Colossians 3, particularly verses 1 to 4, and it tells us when Christ is revealed, and it says, who is our life? Then we will be revealed with him in heaven. What a wonderful promise that is. But there is also another problem that we have is there is also a second death. A second death, which means there are people who are without Christ. They will die and they will experience a second death where their lives eternally punished forever and ever and ever. A second death. We experience the first death. All of us will find our way there. Now, when I say we, I'm, I'm speaking in the sense that all of you, hoping that all of you really know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I say we. Hopefully it is in fact we. But some of you may not know Christ, and you do surely know people who don't know Christ, and they will be raised again, and they will be judged, and they will be cast in the place of utter darkness. So the question is, why do people need Jesus Christ? They need Christ because they must have life. Now the world, even as we considered last week, the world is forever telling us, here are the things that you need for life. Here are the things that will satisfy you in life. And that's why, even as I mentioned last week in the recent Super Bowl, that um, retailers, um, businesses, paid $7 million for 30 seconds of advertisement, $7 million. And there were a couple of commercials that I saw several times, and, and I calculated it up, and I'm just thinking, they just spent $70 million just on their airtime, more or less the production of what it cost them to create the commercial itself. And they're telling you, here's something that you need. Here's something that will satisfy you. This will bring you gratification. This will bring you satisfaction. This will bring you happiness, and this will bring you young life. If you want to look the way you used to look, uh, you can do it through this. Well, the only way you can look the way you used to look is go back in a time machine, right? Uh, but some people want to convince us otherwise. No, that's reality, and I saw that even at that reunion as you went up to people and say, hey, Carl, how are you doing? And again, it was, I am such and such, and oh my, yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> we don't look the same. You know, I graduated, I'll tell you when I graduated, I, in 1981, so things have changed since 1981. I've changed since 1981. You've changed since 1981. Now, some of you weren't born in 1981. <laughs> but nonetheless, change has gone about. Have you not looked in the mirror and thought, oh, my. <laughs> no, be positive. You know, life is good, right? <laughs> but we change because of a fall. People are going to be separated from the living God because of a fall. Everyone is born with a sinful nature, and it cannot be overcome themselves. And the world is telling us, here are the things that you need, and we must make a decision. No, there is but one need, and that's to have a right relationship with the living God. 
There's but one need, and it is me. As a Christian, I must be a proclaimer of this message to people around me. That's my calling even in life. You know, the advertisers, they spend billions upon billions of dollars on advertisement. As a matter of fact, I told you last week that simply in the U.S. itself in 2023, advertisers spent $351 billion. You can change a nation with $351 billion. There's many nations in the world today, that's not even their gross national product, $351 billion. And they're trying to convince you they appeal to your eyes. You see it. They appeal to your touch. They appeal to your smell. They appeal to your what? They appeal to your, your hearing and to your taste. And sometimes that's effective. It, it, it can be. Um, you know, whenever I go home, I, I tend to uh, enjoy Southern cooking. And there's just something to Southern cooking that's it's quite good. Uh, the palate appreciates Southern cooking. At least mine does. But other places doesn't appreciate it. So you can't have much Southern cooking or it will show up. That, and you know what I mean by that, do you not? It's like someone will say to you, you've been visiting home, haven't you? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know. So there's a sense in which someone says, go there, it's excellent. Or I'll say to my sister or someone else, can you prepare that again? The way you do it is so good because it's satisfying. And in life, there is but one thing that should satisfy us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agree with that? And this is why the psalmist even said, what is it in Psalm 34? He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting him. Our our palates have to be trained properly because here is the problem. Yes, there is an appeal, but when it comes to the spiritual realm, uh, our, our senses are damaged. How were they damaged? Genesis chapter 3. So we don't see properly, and we don't hear properly, and we don't think properly about life. It's called being in sin. It's called being under total inability. It's called having a sinful nature, and we need someone that can rescue us from it. Now, we already noted from last week, number one, Um, Only Jesus can set one free from the bondage of sin. Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of God is upon him, and he came to preach the gospel, and he was going to proclaim release even to captives. The same thought is true in Ephesians 4, 8. He is the only one that can save us from the bondage of sin. 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26 as well communicates this great truth. But it was also this, number two, only Jesus can provide true happiness in life. True happiness. The world is forever telling us that we need something else. But of course, we see in Matthew chapter 5, starting off with all of those verses, communicating what? Happy is the man. Happy is the man. Happy is the man. If you want true happiness, it is a life of obedience. And this is why Jesus Christ says so plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when we keep God's commandments, that brings us and it gives us a lasting happiness. And this is also why in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, when Solomon is bringing the book to an end, when it's all been said and done, it is this. 
It is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This brings true happiness in life. And all of us who spent some time in the world, we perhaps were attempting to find satisfaction and happiness in the things that the world had to offer. We were biting of the fruit of the world. And you bite of the fruit of the world and you realize that I am truly not satisfied with this. Why am I not satisfied? Because what the world offers you is not meant to satisfy a spiritual desire and need. It cannot satisfy that spiritual and desire and need. It is wanting. It is lacking. And so happiness is, in fact, in Christ. Only in Christ. And the I also, from last week, brought it to our attention that only Jesus can heal our hurts. Only Jesus can heal our hurts. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 refers to the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, for those of you that have gone through affliction, as you go through affliction, there is something you can anticipate, and that anticipation is that the Holy Spirit, the God of all comfort, will comfort you in your affliction, but there's purpose behind it. He says you will be comforted so that you can comfort even others. So friends, stop for a moment. When you go through difficulty and heartache and pain and God comforts you, there's a purpose behind it. Not that you just simply experience the comfort, but that you can do what? Be a vessel to comfort others as well. When you can say to people, friends, yes, I have been there. I have experienced that. You can distinguish between sympathy and empathy. And all of us should have a sense of sympathy when we talk to individuals that are going through difficulty, but not everyone can empathize with a person. That is to empathize, I have actually been there. I have experienced that hurt. And this is how the Lord ministered to me during that time. Only Jesus can do that. I also brought an article to your attention, which talks about, it was entitled, Rich, Successful, and Miserable. How is it some people can have so much of the world, but their lives are still miserable? And the answer to that is pretty obvious. Uh, They are still miserable, miserable because that's their life. There's nothing beyond that. And when you are identified by a career, uh, when you're identified by education, when you're identified by recognition, then when that education or career, that recognition shifts or changes, then misery comes as well. It should never be that. Uh, should one strive to achieve? I think you should strive to achieve because you do your work unto the Lord. Is this not biblical? Absolutely it is. You do your work to the Lord, and that will be your satisfaction. And even if you achieve at a very high level, Praise Lord, praise the Lord. And you can say, he is the one who has given me the giftedness and the senses to achieve the things that I have. But if in a moment, whatever you have achieved is taken away, you still have satisfaction in life. Now, there is something else that this article recounted. I gave you other examples from the article, but I want to share a couple things that would lead to point four in a moment. In the article, it reads this. It says, not surprisingly, the death of a spouse, losing your job, ill health, and getting divorced can all cause great unhappiness. But adaptation comes to the rescue. 
Folks usually adjust to these setbacks, and within a few years, their reported happiness often returns to earlier level. And he talks about smelling the roses. What can you do about all of this, particularly if you're in your 40s and feeling gloom? Consider these three strategies. And he goes to give these three strategies that will make you happy. The only problem with this is there is some, we'll call it natural common sense about that, that when people do grow diff- go through difficulty, time will often heal. Time will heal. My family members are going through a period right now, they're healing. My sister is healing, having lost a grandson. My nephew is healing, having lost a son. But in one sense, there is always going to be a memory there. There has to be another source that will help us through the difficulties in life. And I don't just think it's adaptation. It's not simply adaptation. One must go to a source that is higher and a source that is eternal, and a source that is meaningful, and that is a relationship to the living God. And that relationship must be nurtured. And I do believe this. Friends can help you nurture that. This is why when people go through difficulty, what I've noticed over the years, sometimes people go through difficulty, and they can then remove themselves. Do you know what I mean by that? They're not connected to the body of Christ the way they should be. And this should be your place of refuge and counsel and comfort is amongst the people of God. And that's why it's so important that we go beyond simply being a place where we learn, but a place where we're connected to one another. And it was, it was kind of, it was fun hearing earlier, uh, Burbank started it off um, when the person, you know, the young, Ryan, right? Ryan right there said he's from Burbank. And what did you say, Burbank? That's, come on. That's really not how you said it. Okay, let's do it over again. Ryan is from Burbank. Thank you. All right. Then all of a sudden, Northridge got into it and Simi Valley got into it. Oh, my word. What else is going to be next, right? Okay. Why did, why, and I know the, of course we know the people at Burbank. Bill and I know the people at Burbank. Tom knows the people at Burbank as well because they're connected. You do life together. And when you do life together with one another, when you go through difficulty, and there are people at Van Nuys, and there are people at Santa Clarita, and people in Saugus, in Simi Valley, and people in the Pasadena area that when you do life together with one another in Santa Monica as well. Let's not forget the beach people, right? (laughs) They already have it well. What a great location, right? Um, You go through life together and you experience it so someone can be there for you. I'm not discounting adaptation, but the question is, how do you adapt? That's the question. What are your resources? Um, friendships are necessary. But this leads into something. Um, friends are good to have. How many of you would say you have close friends? I Hopefully everyone's hand goes, goes up, right? You have close friends. You should have someone that's a close friend. You know, the scripture tells us that, that they stick closer than a, than a brother. But it also says faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
indeed. So if you have a true friendship and your friend has never hurt you by rebuking you or challenging you, you don't have a good friend. You say, wait a minute, that sounds like something you say to high schoolers. No, uh, it's something I say to every age level because I see life happen. A friend has to be someone that says, no, that's a bad idea. It's going to jeopardize our friendship if you keep moving in this direction. I cannot possibly support that. I don't care that you say he's handsome. I don't care that you say she's cute. It's not for you. But no. No buts. Have you been there before? Have you known someone that's been there before? Or when it's the opposite, I am so happy for you that you found someone. I'm so happy that it's worked out for you. Give me a call as you go through your difficulty, your heartache, your pain. Friends are needed. However, (laughs) friends will let you down at some point in time. Why? Not intentionally, but because of the problem we saw in Genesis 3, a fall. Friends won't always keep their promises. Even the greatest of loved ones won't always keep their promises. And this is the fourth reason that people need Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Only Jesus is able to keep all his promises. Only Jesus. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Wonderful verse. And and what does it tell us? I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. Is that a wonderful promise or what? You have this reality that as people looking for stability in life and meaningful relationships, the most meaningful relationship is readily available when someone is bound to Jesus Christ by his blood and his resurrection. I will never leave you or forsake you. I have a question for you. It's a simple question. How many of you believe that this morning? Say amen. 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 Absolutely. What a great promise for us all. An interesting um, piece of work that was done about how many promises are there in the Bible. And Dr. Um, Everett Storms of Ontario, he did research into how many promises are actually in the Bible. And he said at one point in time, he said that someone said that generally there are about 30,000, but he questioned that, which is reasonable to question it. Because in the scripture itself, there are like 31,100 verses. So, no, I don't think so. Um, So he did a study, and I appreciate the study. So he looked from, from Genesis to Revelation and how many promises are in the Bible. And his research says this, listen to me, um, 800, I'm sorry, let's add a zero to that, 8,810. So 8810, 88-10 promises. But they, there are category, categories to them, and there's several. Let me give them to you. There's 70, we'll call it 7,500, 7,487 promises from God to man. So that's 85% of, of the Bible itself are promises of God to man. Another category Uh, 991 instances of one person making a promise to another. 290 promises from man to God. God, I promise that I will do this. 
And there are also their promises made by angels, most of them found in Luke. There are nine promises made by, and I quote, that old liar, the devil. And the example being Jesus uh, was promised by the devil that he would give him all the kingdoms of the world if he did what? If he worshipped him. So even the devil makes promises. And there are two promises that are made by an evil spirit, and two are made by God the Father to God the Son. So 8,810 promises. And again, roughly 7,500 are promises from God to man. And interesting, um, there's some books that have no promises at all. The book of Titus, no promises. Ephesians only has six promises. On the other hand, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel have over 1,000 promises each. Think about that for a moment. I will restore you. I will come again. I will bring you back. I will do it for my own name's sake. And when you think about this idea of promises, uh, that is something that people need. That I know that there's something that is certain in life. Go with me to Psalm 37. Yeah, I think we can move that ahead. There we go. Psalm 37. And I thought, okay, I, a psalm that I enjoy a great deal, and I've talked through this psalm before, and you can see it's a very dense psalm of promises. So I just went through it myself again and thought I wanted to share them with you. And I won't go into detail, but I do want you to see every location that I discovered them, and it's quite a few through this psalm. Um, if you look with me in Psalm 37, I uh, look to Isaiah 37. Let me turn back. Um, verse 2. Promise. Um, for they will quickly wither like the grass and fade. That's a promise. Your enemies, I will, I will judge them. Promise. Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Where is the promise? I will give you the desires of your heart. A promise. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also him in what? Here is a promise. He will what? He will do it. Another promise. Verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. A promise. Verse 9. A promise. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Verse 10, yet a little while and the wicked will be no more and you will look for them in their place and they will not be there because God has promised to deal with them appropriately. Verse 11, a promise. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. A promise. Verse 15, their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Yes, they will come after you to harm you, but it will be reversed. Notice verse 17, another promise, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. Amen to that, that he sustains us in the midst of difficulty. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. Verse 19, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil and the days of famine, they will have abundance. Verse 20, but the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. 
Verse 22, a promise. But those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his ways. Verse 24, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong. And why? What's the beauty behind that promise? Notice the intimacy of it. Pause here for, for a moment. Because Yahweh, or the Lord, is the one who holds his hand. And uh, I love the psalmist also communicates it by his gentleness. He makes us great. He takes us by the hand. You see promises. I won't go through them all for the sake of time, but let me give you the verses at least. Verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, a promise. Verse 31, a promise. 34, a promise. 33, a promise. 37, a promise. 38, a promise. And then it ends with 39. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. Verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. A God of promise. And we have to rest in that reality that we know he has spoken. And if he has spoken, his word will be good. Um, it doesn't seem to matter as much as it did at one point in time. But um, people would often say a man's word is his, is his bond. Uh, I spoke it, therefore I will bring it about. Even if it means that there's going to be discomfort for me, I said that I would do it and I will act upon it. And so our God is that God. Why do people need the Lord? Number five, it's this. Only Jesus is willing and able to endure the wrath of God. It ends on a sober note, but a glorious note, a hopeful note. Because a fall created a problem. It created a need. And mankind has been attempting throughout for millennia now to do what? How can I rectify my situation? How can I be in right standing with God? How can I have happiness? How can I have a future? How can I have a right perspective on life? How can I have meaningful living? All of it's been vain. So he's orchestrated what religions but the scripture is clear jesus christ said i am the way i am the truth and the life no one comes to the father except by me romans 8 turn there with me in romans 8 paul helps us understand this idea and verse 1, first, it's accomplished by our relationship to Christ. This is how we escape the wrath of God. Therefore, what great news is this? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? None. Because of the fall, we all were under condemnation eternally. Doomed to spend an eternity separated from the living God. But now... There's no condemnation. And there are four things that sort of mark off this verse, if you will. Let me give them to you. Number one, just setting the context. There is therefore. Now, because of your relationship to Jesus Christ, all of that has changed. And of course, if one were to go back 
to chapter 5. And what does chapter 5, verse 1 tell us? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, a relationship that was one of great enmity now is one that is reconciled and peaceful. Establishing the time and the reason. He says, now, there is therefore now the reality that because the moment you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that radically changed your standing before God, you have peace with God, and peace brings about the reality that you cannot be condemned. And a communicating, we'll call it that, communicating the accomplishment, no condemnation. Um, In the book of Colossians, Paul says that there was a certificate of debt that was hostile towards us. But Christ has taken it out of the way. Some things that happen with advertisers is this, um, is they are attempting to tell you what you need and what would be wonderful for you. Um, They don't generally warn you about debt, do they? Have you ever seen a commercial where they said, now, don't buy it if you don't have the money? <laughs> have you ever seen one like that? It's like, you, you know, the new X series, you know, the X7 is a beautiful, it's a beautiful car. Um, and I've seen it, and I've seen the advertisement for it. And someone that rented it recently told me how wonderful it was. But I've never seen a commercial that says, you know, the ultimate driving machine. However, if it's not in your budget, you shouldn't do this. (laughs) Those commercials don't come, do they? Those warnings don't come, do they? No. You have a debt, an eternal debt. And Christ is saying, here's the beauty of it all. I will take it away. I mean, there's students that... Sometimes they don't have the means to get through college, and at the end of their college career, they have a great deal of debt. And now they come together with someone, and they have to have a conversation. Ouch, what are we going to do for the next six or seven years to get rid of this debt, or maybe some other sort of debt? But there's an eternal debt. But now there's no condemnation taken away by Christ. But number four, expressing the limitation. What do we mean by that? There's a limitation to this for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the beauty of being in Christ. Every person without Christ is still in debt. Eternal debt. And the thing about trying to pay off your own debt is it creates more debt. Some of you may have been at this stage in life, or you may be there now. Um, the credit card companies, it makes life very easy, doesn't it? Some of us that, you know, our high school graduation dates are a little earlier. Uh, you remember the days when you, it was cash. I got my first credit card in college. It was Discover card. I remember that Discover card. It just came out. And they were on campus saying, apply, apply, apply thinking, how is it that all these college students who barely have jobs right now, they're giving us this plastic where we can just go and say, I want it. And I got me a Discover card. And you know what I did with that Discover card? Did I just tuck it away, say emergencies, when the situation calls upon it? No, I went out and said, I like it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let me discover it, right? <laughs> Let me discover it. Then all of a sudden, the bill came. I have debt now. <laughs> the bill came. And then if I don't, if I don't pay it off, there is a, a percentage that they're saying 17 and a half, 21.5% that you're paying. And then they'll give you an advertisement. So oh, you can simply make the minimal payment, pay $15 on it. And guess what's happening when you pay $15, your net, your debt begins to bill. And now it's going to take you until you go to your high school reunion to pay it all off. <laughs> debt. But Paul says it was hostile toward you. And it was taken away. Now, for those in Christ, your debt is cleared. Amen? It's clear. Let's move on. That's the limitation of it. Are you in Christ? Now, it's also illustrated by the contrast of the spirit and the law. Verse 2, the spirit of life gives freedom. Notice verse 2, Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Freedom. Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 so clearly stated, whom the Son sets free shall be what? Free indeed. A freedom that is unique to being in Christ. The spirit of the law, that is, as we now, the spirit for the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. All of us were born in sin, and because of that, we were all separated from the living God, but now we have life through Jesus Christ. Why? We can say this, verses 3 and 4, the person of Christ accomplished what we could not. The person of Christ accomplished what we could not. This breaks down into five parts in verses 3 and 4. Number one, the law was limited. Notice what it says here. For the law, it says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Why was it weak? Because we had no ability whatsoever to keep it. And this is why Paul would communicate in other places as well that he was under condemnation because how can one keep the law? And this is what a verse that we learned perhaps early in our Christian faith, Ephesians 2.89, it is uh, by grace you've been saved and not what? As a, as a result of our works, lest any man should boast. It is not by law. Law condemns us. And I said earlier how you accumulate more debt because the moment you attempt to do something that pleases the Lord, you are saying to the Lord, I reject your plan of gracious salvation. And you accumulate more debt because it's self-righteousness. The law was limited. The law was a revealer of our sin, not the salvation of our souls. The Father provided, though, thankful for that. Because then it says, um, it was weak. God did, sending his own son, sending his own son. That's the father's provision. What is the greatest gift ever? Um, Paul clearly tells us, does he not? He says, 
It's an indescribable gift that we have all received beyond measure. And I've received a number of wonderful things in my life, and I'm sure you have as well, wonderful gifts that you receive from people. And, and sometimes it's surely not even um, the amount of what something may have cost. It's the heart behind it. I still keep cards that I have from people, my former church, some that I've uh, been given by you, and I, I'll pull them out at times, and, and I'll read them and look at them. Those mean a great deal. Those are wonderful gifts to have. You know, the gift of family, wonderful. Uh, the gift of recently seeing my little grandson again and playing fort with him under the tables and throw a blanket on top. That's a wonderful thing to have. The gift of friends that I just visited back in Orlando, that's a wonderful. The gift to be able to preach the word of God. The gift of knowing some of you and caring for some of you. Those are all wonderful things, but there is one gift. And as a relationship with Jesus Christ, because none of that can change, can never change. The Father did sending his Son. The Son accomplished it, though. How? Notice what the text says. In the likeness of sinful flesh, it says, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why does it say he condemned sin in the flesh? Because obviously Jesus Christ, the God-man, he, he walked among men. He was tired. He spoke. He ate. He touched. He healed. He taught. And he condemned sin in his flesh. The goal was accomplished, though. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So now, because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, what the law was requiring, which was what? Perfection. Jesus Christ, that perfect Savior, now we have his righteousness, and the requirement is met through him, but yet we are the beneficiaries of it. The qualification stated, and what does it say here? Who walk according to the flesh, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have Christ. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Um, look with me briefly, Jeremiah. I, I mentioned something to you last week about a song that I remember singing, you know, as a young person. Um, Jeremiah, chapter 8. We'll get there. We'll get there. Jeremiah chapter 8, I was singing to you. I wasn't singing to you. I was humming a part of the melody. Um, there is a bomb in Gilead. And, you know, bomb, bomb, bomb. You know, some heard bomb, just bomb. And someone even said to me, bless their hearts, after, they're like, what is a bomb? What do explosions have to do with Gilead? Flesh. It, just my enunciation, I'm assuming, was the case. Yeah, I know, you have to get the, uh, that in there a little bit, the tongue involved in it. And so, I referenced the scripture, but we didn't go there. So let me, on a final thought, let's consider it. What does Jeremiah say? My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of the daughter of my people from a distant land is... Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not within her? Why have they provoked me with their graven images and foreign idols? 
Harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. The brokenness of the daughter of my people, I am broken. I mourn, dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Because they had rejected it. And this is what Jeremiah is saying, that you, these false teachers um, that prophesy falsely, these priests who do things out of order, uh, it, it's available to you, but you have rejected it. And because you have rejected it, a price will be paid. But there is one in Jesus Christ. And that was a song that I was referring to. Hear the lyrics to it. And we can go over it. It says, what? There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged. And deep I feel the pain. In prayers, the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. If you can't pray like Peter, if you can't be like Paul, go home and tell your neighbor he died to save us all. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the wounded soul. And that line, I remember singing that as a young person. You know, if you can't pray like Peter or be like Paul, what you can do is this. Go and be an advertisement for the Lord. Go and speak for the Lord. You may never like the pastor of this church be somewhere, especially younger guys, you're aspiring to ministry, perhaps. You may, you're not, you may not preach for 55 years in one place. And there's some of you here today, there is a certain knowledge. You may never accumulate to a certain knowledge. It may be other people have that have known the Lord as long as you have. You may be unfamiliar with some of the phrases that sometimes are even used. But what you can do is this. You can go and tell people, that they need the Lord. Amen? The need is obvious. But as Jesus Christ said, he looked into the harvest and he said, the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of harvest that he would send out workers. So this is what we communicate. This is our message. This is our purpose. He died to save us all. Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. You are good and kind, and thank you that you gave so much when we had nothing. Not even, we cannot even say so little to offer. We had nothing to offer. Sinners, drowning in the debt of our sin, but yet it's taken away because of Christ. You are good and kind. Help us, Lord, to be advertisements for you that says Christ is alive. He is king. He is Lord. He is priest. He is God. Bow the knee to him and be saved. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.